This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. As we all know all too well, trade, trade policy, certainly between the United States and China, it is rather complicated. Uh, and it often it seems as though the presidents of the United States and China are talking past one another when it comes to a trade deal. Just look at some of the news today. Let's get into it with Ray Zhang, Program Associate at Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S., uh, joining us on the phone in Washington, D.C. Uh, Ray, nice to have you uh, here with us to talk about this. You know, it's an interesting, today we had Chinese President Xi saying his nation wants to work toward a phase one trade agreement with the U.S. that's based in part on equality. And then we heard President Trump just hours later said he doesn't kind of share that guiding principle. So, as I said, talking past one another. Um, we've had some great insight from Henry Kissinger at the Bloomberg uh, New, Economy, New Economy Forum out in Beijing. So we've been getting he, uh, his and other people kind of weigh in on U.S.-China, uh, the U.S.-China relationship. How do you see it right now? I think that for China, the name of the game right now is that they see politics as transactional. As this trade negotiation process has progressed, diplomats have often been assessing the policy items they've been able to get uh, movement on from the United States and then report back and then make adjustments accordingly. Of course, this being the Xi Jinping era of Beijing that the United States is negotiating with, there are certain lines in the sand that they've demonstrated that they're not willing to budge on. And this has been what's getting China and the United States stuck time and again. And so, Ray, tell us how Hong Kong figures into this, because we saw probably one of the only times in recent memory, uh, one of the only recent moments of bipartisanship, I should say, with U.S. Congress uh, condemning and then ultimately the president signing uh, through legislation, you know, talking about the Hong Kong protests, really siding uh, with those protesters there at a time when obviously uh, things are a bit sensitive, as Carol was alluding to, and you were as well. How does Hong Kong figure into these discussions at this moment? Well, um, as I just mentioned, there are certain lines in the sand that Beijing has signaled they're not willing to budge on. Hong Kong is one of those said lines in the sand. And um, given what China's government has been observing, um, they're likely to, of course, not be very happy with what Congress has signaled in the legislation. But they're also still very aware of, especially given President Trump's comments, that politics is still in some part a of a transactional nature. So um, they're going to be wondering what they're able to get out of uh, American negotiators uh, through the avenue of the United States executive branch. That's, I think, the leverage point that mm. they see. You know, I do wonder how this is all ultimately going to be written about in the history books. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned Henry Kissinger, of course, former U.S. Secretary of State, 
he was at uh, our Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Beijing, and he did say that he's concerned that the U.S. and China are on the foothills of a Cold War. Uh, you know, but maybe it's not too late because it's just the beginning. I, I, I'm curious how you guys are seeing things at this point. You know, we talk often about a kind of duopoly of a world where there's China and then the U.S. Is that is that where we're headed? Um, I mean, certainly the United States and China have very large um, influence. Um, capacity in respective area in their respective areas of the world, but at the same time, there's always a, there, there's definitely an unshakable uh, international dimension to this. The trade war itself impacts so many trading partners of um, the United States and China that are trying to reconfigure right now. Um, security issues, um, including how the United States is currently managing alliances with Japan and South Korea, are in flux. And so it's it's certainly important to look at uh, the trajectories of the U.S. and China in the middle to long term, but also other pieces of this very global puzzle. And so what do you look for next in terms of a big move here, Ray? Uh, In terms of right now, China is very sensitive about its peripheral politics. So Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and how uh, different parts of the world are reacting um, as Um, The legislation that just passed Congress is veto-proof, so even if Trump decides to veto it, it will um, go through and become law. And so the next steps, I think, will be um, what kind of clearer, more cohesive policy will come out of the United States uh, towards Asia. That's certainly something that many Asian states, both China, which we're competing with, and ally states that we're not necessarily competing with as much are waiting to see. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Ray Shong, Program Associate at Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S. A timely conversation for sure. Joining us on the phone from the nation's capital. I think private is what we're looking for in those lyrics. We're talking about private equity. Friday affair? Private. Oh. Private. Because we're talking about private equity. We're talking about KKR. In talks with Walgreens, as has been reported by uh, our own Nabila Ahmed. She is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. A piece in the magazine this week, sort of breaking down what's underneath this deal there's the deal, and then there's everything around it and kind of what led up to it and what it tells us in the bigger picture. So tell us where we are right now with this um, flirtation, as it were, between KKR and Walgreens. They're not properly dating yet. They're just still flirting. They're talking about whether they should go on a date. We're right. just friends. We're just friends. They're just texting a little bit like, hey, bro, like, what yeah. are you up to? But if they come together, we're talking about a huge deal. Yeah, this would be something like 70 or $80 billion dollars. Seven zero or eight zero. I mean, that's crazy. It's a mega, mega deal. Basically, Walgreens is in a spot of bother. The CEO, Stefano Pessina, recognizes that perhaps the company would be better off being in private hands away from the quarterly earnings reporting demands of being a public market company and that the turnaround might be better done in private. 
And Stefano has a relationship with KKR, correct? He does, yes. He did a deal with them uh, back in 2007. He's done a couple of deals with them. He's made them a lot of money. They've all got made a lot of money from those deals. So they know each other really well. And so you talk to bankers all the time. What are they saying to you about what this says about the availability of cash, the sort of equity portion of this, but also the availability of debt, even if you can't quite get there on this deal, it sort of signals that people are kind of up for some big stuff. Absolutely, and we're seeing bigger and bigger deals. One of the things that's happened in the market this year in M&A is that we've had more big deals than what you would typically see. Um, Typically, you have about a third of the market will be in the two to $10 billion range. Those deals are really down this year, but we've seen mega, mega deals. Mm. So you can, you know, the the financing markets are definitely open for big deals like that. And we know that private equity particularly has tons of cash just waiting to be put to work. But talk to about Talk to us, you know, Nabil, about the composition or what the the potential composition of this deal might be. We're talking about some equity, but a lot of debt, which is typical, I know, in the private equity world. But I do wonder in this financing market, in this debt market, could they get it done? Well, there's a lot of skepticism about that. That is a great question, Carol, and they would love to know the answer to your question. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're trying to talk to us, a few people in the market, about that. So what's happened is that probably the way they would need to structure it would require about $50 billion of debt. And typically that sort of debt for leverage buyout is rated single B, which is junkier end of the junk bond bond, junk loan market. And that end of the market hasn't been going so well. Investors have been selling off at that end of the market. So there are big questions about whether you can raise it that way. But Mm. they could do a a clever thing and make some of this debt investment grade by offering um, it as a secured debt or securing it against something. Right. There are ways to do it. It'll be tough. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I find interesting about this is, and KKR has been, in many ways, at the vanguard of this, you know, trying to look for sort of creative ways to do deals. And you do sort of wonder, if not a total, you know, sort of classic vanilla mega, I uh, LBO, excuse me, if there's not something they figure out how to do in order to alleviate some of the pain that clearly uh, Pacina is feeling or certainly some of, the, some of the undervaluation that he senses in the company. Yeah, and look, he could himself do some of these things anyway. Right. He doesn't need KKR to do it. Um, you know, one of the things that he could do is sell this stake they have right. in the drug distributor, Amerisource Bergen. They have a big stake, which is valued in the market around $10 billion. People mm. think that they could probably get four and a half, five billion, something like that. So that would help him a bit. Uh, there's also the UK operation. So this is Boots that is very divorced from the US and it's only about 10% of the US revenue. So they could split that out as well. Nabil, right. just got about 30 seconds left here. The other thing is Walgreens. I mean, they're facing challenges in the back office and the front office, right? Yes, they're, they're facing these online retailers like Amazon, et cetera, for the front office. You know, when you go to buy your toilet paper toothbrush, you don't go to Walgreens. You probably just order an Amazon. And in the back office, they've got pharmacy upstarts who are trying to take that drug distribution away from them. All right. We're going to leave it there. A lot of stories here, though. And I love the idea that there's just so much money out there, right? At some point, some of this has got to get to work. And big deals are a way to do it. Totally. Nabila Ahmed, M&A reporter, deals reporter extraordinaire for Bloomberg. Here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. 
So Jason, this week at a Capitol Hill briefing, a White House official said that requiring hospitals and insurers to disclose their negotiated prices probably will not reduce prices, but it is a starting point. So getting healthcare costs down, man, it's been a longtime theme, a problem we've been talking about for decades. Karen Ignani is president and CEO at the New York City-based health insurance company, Emblem Health. She joins us uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Friday. So nice to see you again. Nice to see you too. Thank you. I do feel like, you know, when I think about it, I go back to the Clinton era and trying to figure out healthcare. I feel like it's this consistent um, problem trying to figure it out. Um, how do you see it right now? And it's certainly something that's playing out on the current campaign trail as well. You are absolutely right the way you framed it. It's the triangle of cost, access, and quality. We've Mm -hmm. been talking about that for decades because we haven't hit the three. And what I think is being telegraphed across the country is costs are too high. We need to get everybody in and we need to figure out the best way to resolve those two issues. There were there was tremendous progress made after the passage of the ACA. With and you a, worked on that, yes, correct? with a significant number of people who heretofore didn't have coverage getting coverage, and that's a big victory. But we're not finished yet. So how do we finish that, and how do we get the cost down? During the ACA, the decision was made to work on the access side. That was important because we had to get everyone in. But to sustain the progress, you need to deal with the costs. And it's like crying fire in a crowded room. Everybody goes running when you talk about containing costs. Because it is very, my um, cost reduction is someone else's revenue reduction. Mm -hmm. And therein encapsulates the problem that politicians have to deal with, public health individuals have to deal with, and folks in the policy community have to deal with. But we have to deal with it. And that's what I think you're seeing politically. Whether it's a conversation about Medicare for all, single payer, what have you, it's a structural conversation that masks this issue of costs are too high. It's a structural conversation. It's a structural conversation, exactly right. And in fact, under the hood of some of the proposals for single-payer Medicare for All is, in fact, something that we're not talking about. Hospitals would be paid at roughly 110% of what the government pays under Medicare. Now, right now, throughout the health industry, it you have a wide variation of what hospitals charge, 150%, 200%, 300%. In some cases for outpatient surgery or at outpatient settings, it's up in the 500% of what the government pays. We should be talking about that. You talked about transparency in your TIA. We should be talking about what are the charges in relationship to what the government pays for Medicare. If regular people were to see that, that would begin to foster a conversation about what do we do. So what's preventing that from happening? Well, in... Let me let me answer your question in a roundabout way, not to dodge your question, but to give you a comparison. In the ACA, um, what was done in the health plan community is that we were required to dis- disclose publicly every year what we are spending on <clears throat> administrative costs, which include what you're spending on staffing and so right. on, profits, et cetera, and what you're actually spending on medical care. If you took that, the analog there, and said, what are pharmaceutical companies charging? For example, how much is going to R&D? Is it indeed just 25% and most of it's going to profit administrative costs? That would give politicians and policymakers breadcrumbs to actually move toward a set of solutions because that would be too low. Because the justification for high costs is that it's all R&D. It's not. In terms of hospitals, what are hospitals charging in relation to what Medicare pays? 
If we were able to have Medicare rates and health insurance companies and health plans, you could slash the premium costs. Because we're the aggregator, we're the bot, the end of the chain. It's based on what people are charging, and that's a whole. That opens up a whole debate, opens up lots of possibilities. I'm not advocating Medicare rates per se, but I do think that we should have some disclosure in the public arena about what are people charging in comparison. Well, I certainly do it when I, if you know, God forbid, when there's a hospital, you know, thing in my family, or I just I look at bills come in and I look at, and we have great insurance. I'm full disclosure here at Bloomberg, but you look at what the charge what's being charged for things and then I look at what the reimbursement is I'm kind of blown away sometimes right. and whether it's an emergency room yeah. visit or what have you and your point again in the tee up was really important you don't have to blow up a competitive market about putting everything out in the public arena you know um, Columbia Press is charging X NYU is charging Y Mount Sinai is charging why Z not? why well, not well let me tell that. you why yeah and then tell you give you an alternative if you, if Columbia Press is charging um, $100 and NYU is charging 90 they're going to quickly say, well, we're as good as Columbia. We should charge 100 So there is a possibility of costs going up hmm. as a result of that. However, if you were to require those same hospitals to say, here's how much we're charging in comparison to what Medicare is paying, that's a whole different thing. Right. And that would provide a level of transparency. If you were say, to say mm, to no, pharmaceutical companies, right. what are you spending on R&D? Let's put it right out there. And then let's see about whether that's enough to justify well, the kinds of I costs think, we're seeing. I think about Jason Wright, the conversations we have about, I mean, Bloomberg has created a gender equality index. Like, do you, ESG investing, right? We're trying to create some metrics so you can really compare companies on what they're doing in terms of ESG. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder if there's something mm -hmm. similar to be had when yeah. it comes to drug yeah. companies, healthcare companies, right. so that you really kind of know what you're dealing yeah. with. I think transparency is a very important thing. But so what's the first step? I wouldn't what's land. the first step? How do we do I would, that? I would just disclose, require pharmaceuticals to disclose how they're spending their money, just the way health plans have to disclose how they're spending their money. We shouldn't be the only ones in the system. Hospitals should be required to disclose as well. And then that that's the first thing. Second thing, I think there are important public roles here. I don't think that we've done enough from a societal point of view to actually think about helping, lending a helping hand to middle class people in terms of up offsetting mm -hmm. costs. I think more could be done there. I also in, think- In what sense? How would we do that? How well, would we offset that? in the ACA, um, and I'm gonna say, sound like a boring policy wonk now, but I'll go ahead and do it, because um, you've invited me to- you're in a safe space. Okay, it's good. Okay. Um, in the ACA, there are subsidies up to a certain amount um, with respect to your income. You could inch that up a little mm. to help more families, but you don't want to do that without doing something on the cost side. So disclosure is really important. I do think there's a, a governmental role also with respect to things that are bugging physicians. And this is, again, going to sound quotidian, but it's really important. You know, is there a public role in terms of what we call credentials? credentialing in the healthcare arena. So every health plan credentials every doctor. We hound them about information. Are you still at this address? Blah, 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 blah. They have legions of people in their office having to answer those questions. Could the government take on that right. role? Of course they could. And it could be quicker, easier, and synchronous across the system. We could, sync, we could shorten right. and synthesize quality measures so that we 
pick the things that are most important so you get that triangle of cost, access, and quality, and we make progress. It just has to be the will, private and public exactly. sectors. Right. It has to be the will. Yeah. But something big is going to have to break, yeah. I feel like. I think Somebody's so too. going to have to be bold. All right. Well, I think people have to have specific proposals. Yeah. There you go. Good stuff. Karen Ignani, thank you so much. President and Chief Executive Officer at Emblem Health in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I say... Right, so we're doing a little talk a little startups, a little VC, and interestingly, sort of uh, keying off something we talked about earlier, healthcare, uh, yep. and what uh, may be underneath some of the startups that we're seeing on the scene. Uh, Vanessa Liu is here with us. She's vice president at SAP and the head of SAP's startup accelerator. You may know it as SAP.io. She's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, a native New Yorker native New York City, uh, I believe, as well. So tell us what is going on out there. You guys just hosted uh, an event with some startups that are uh, in the healthcare space. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, that's right. So we just had a demo day where we profiled seven companies we've been working with for the last 12 weeks. These are healthcare startups that are late seed to series C that we chose out of a field of over 150 companies. And they're all in the space of healthcare, being able to work with healthcare providers to change the innovation that they're doing and also working with corporates on employee health and wellness. Why healthcare? And I'm curious, is this an acknowledgement that this is one of the industries that has yet to really be dis- Disrupted. If you look at everything else that's going on, and this is an opportunity essentially for SAP to maybe have some significant say in that disruption. That's exactly right. That's exactly why we did this. This is an industry that is ripe for disruption. There are so many, unfortunately, inefficiencies right now, especially in the U.S. market. So that means that. Why do you say especially U.S. versus other developed markets or other markets that have single payer structures, for instance, where then that becomes much more of a government. Um, control type okay. of industry. And so over here, because there's a lot of fragmentation, right. that means that there are many different pockets where analytics are being done. If you think about how electronic medical records really first started, it was because there had to be systems in place to track what people were mm-hmm. doing. But because there are so many disparate players in it, it's now so all over the place. And that's why this whole entire idea of trying to create some type of centralized repository for data is really interesting. So half of the startups that we were working with over the last 12 weeks have been focused on that using AI, machine learning, thinking about ways where you can really just identify the unstructured text and finding the insights from that. So. We've been talking a lot lately when we've been talking to folks in the entrepreneurial and the venture communities specifically about diversity or lack thereof uh, in the founder class, Mm -hmm. in the investor class as well. You have a lot of power in that world in your selections and essentially your championing there. What do you feel like you guys are doing and, and how do you make a meaningful difference in that part of the equation and having candidly a much more sort of diverse set of founders. Yeah, we have a a commitment where 40% of the founders we either fund or we accelerate through our accelerators have to be founders that are underrepresented. Here in New York, our programs are 100% focused on that. Hmm. The reason why we're doing this is because when we're saying we're going to make technology better, technology for whom? 
How are you going to be making that technology better exactly? And being stewards of technology, we think that we have a critical role to play to say, these are the types of companies we're going to work with. Startups come in so many different forms, right. so many different types of innovations that are happening. A lot of the times what we're finding is that underrepresented founders just haven't been provided the access to the right networks to surface what they're doing. It's not because they don't have the great idea, because they do. So you said 40%? 40% globally. Why not 50%? Why not just been, go in? I want to make it 50%. No, I think it's just kind of interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, the research that's been out there, you know, the more diverse, and I'm not just talking men and women, but the more diverse you have a group of people, whether it's creating companies or discussing certain problems that are out there, that you're more likely to have a smarter solution. That's right. Smarter solution is going to also grow and more viable. It'll just grow that much faster, better cultures. So I'm always curious when we talk to someone like you, Jason, I talk to, you know, a very amount of people in the VC world. What is it in the healthcare that you think is very interesting and innovative that's happening right now? Is it just about kind of getting the data to make sense and and organize it? Or is there something else that's happening that that would that would be like, wow, I didn't know that was going on. So one of the things that we focus on the other half of the cohort were actually corporates that are not going to be every day linked to healthcare, but they have an important role to play. If you think about the Fortune 500 companies out there, the number of employees that they employ, what can you do if you can tap into what they do with employees? Hmm. So if you think about mental health and wellness, you think about how one in four people nowadays are battling some type of mental health condition. But yet, if you look in the workplace, about 60% of people don't talk about it. They don't even talk about the fact that they are struggling with something. Employers can have a very critical role to play because they are there with them. And so that is a shift that we see. It's not just about providers. It's not just about payers. But it's also the role that companies can play. We think that that's a really, really big innovation, really big area that is what we're going to see a lot happening there in the next few years. All right. Great stuff. Thank you so much for coming by. Vanessa Liu is vice president at SAP, head of SAP's startup accelerator. It's called SAP.io. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Doug Sioka is back with us, CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners. Roughly $750 million in assets under management based in Leewood, Kansas. Joining us on the phone from Leewood, Kansas. What's going on in Leewood, Kansas, Mr. Sioka? Hey, it's Friday. <laughs> Have a holiday week. It's, uh, it's great. It's a little chilly here. Feels like fall. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, you know, it's been an interesting week. It's funny that you say that. We were talking with one of our guys out of Washington uh, yesterday, and he was like, it feels like two or three weeks. There was a lot of politics news or political news. There was a lot of just corporate news, possible deal flows, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. I don't know. And I feel like we've backed off, you know, come off the edge when it comes to recession talk, Doug. But how do you see it? 
Uh, not too dissimilar. I mean, I do think this is, relates to the perspective. There's benefits to being outside of the Beltway. And, you know, in the Midwest, it, it maybe gives a little reprieve from some of the daily hecticness. And there's a less of a full immersion in some of the more distracting elements that drive some of the news flow and anxiety. And it maybe just makes it a little bit easier to focus on the facts and, and kind of hone in on what things are actually driving markets and sentiment. And so if you had to think about what's driving it most notably, especially when you talk to your customers, what is it? What's top of mind? Well, I, I think it's, it, Jason, it, it goes back to there's an old, maybe one of the oldest of the adages that it relates to investing is not fighting the Fed. And we wrote a piece a week or so ago that just did kind of a year-over-year comparison to different headlines, which is something I really love to do because it can capture kind of the emotion of the moment. And if they always say investing, like the, the, the three most dangerous words, four most dangerous words, or it's different this time, right. you know, really what I think more, it was more important to uh, abide by is follow the cost of money. If you think a year ago today when the market was in an absolute free fall and emotion was running really rampantly high, you had three things on investors' minds. You had this prospective government shutdown, which we still have today if we don't have another continued resolution after this week's continued resolution on the 20th of December. You had the trade tariff talk and all the tit-for-tat stuff going on between the U.S. and China. Same thing a year ago as we have today. What's the big difference? Right, A year ago, the Fed was still hiking rates right, on the way to the ninth hike in December and jawboning the fact that that may not be the end. And here we are a year later. The Fed has now cut rates three times, pegged the cost of money. It's not going lower maybe anytime soon, but it sure as heck isn't going higher. And sentiment has dramatically improved, as have uh, asset prices. So which one was right? <laughs> the bad sentiment or the good sentiment? <laughs> I mean, because I don't feel like, yes, some things have changed, but a lot of things are, I feel like, not that different. I think that's the main thing. If the only constant is change, really the only thing that changed was the Fed. So if the Fed is saying, here's a tailwind, right, and, and by, by using just kind of a reverse engineering to the most important variable in any experiment, and the market is by all means an experiment, right, the manipulated variable is the one that drives the responding variable, which is the market outcome, and the one that was manipulated was the Fed altering interest rates. So I think the sentiment when rates are going up, when the economy, the economy is being purposely slowed down, when the cost of funds is rising, when less capital is being expressed in the economy, the reaction, Carol, isn't necessarily right or wrong. Yeah. It's appropriate for the precondition. It's just that the precondition has changed. And so as you head toward, you know, we sort of head to this interesting part of the year here. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Doug. Thanksgiving is next week. And one of the things, and Joe Weisenthal is really good about this. I remember him saying, you know, vis-a-vis like crypto a few years ago, that like he predicted sort of a bump in interest in Bitcoin because everybody's going to be talking about it at Thanksgiving. And sure enough, he was right. So what are people going to be talking about? Just like regular old people getting together with their family, probably trying to avoid politics. But what are they going to be talking about when it comes to the markets and beyond? Yeah, I think family is going to be easier to avoid than politics being easier to avoid. In fact, I saw the first sign in my neighborhood this morning of a Pete in 2020 sign. No I kidding. I think that is going to be very, very top of mind, right? We got through cryptocurrency. Um, we certainly have gotten through um, any of other the speculative excesses that have existed over the course of the last couple of years. There are just manias which hands off, hand, handing off takes place. 
But right now, it's almost like a reversion back to the fundamental because, again, the peripheral information, the trade tariffs, which is fiscal policy, what's going on with geopolitical policy, everything that's going on with this impeachment trial, that seems to be top of mind, which drives sentiment, which we see in fund flow, which probably keeps the market reasonably valued. Uh, Important question. How are you feeling about your Irish at this point? Um, I... (laughs) I feel okay. I feel okay. I, I, they, they've been an up-and-down team, very, yeah. maybe as unpredictable as the market has been, but uh, if last week is any indication, they may have found a, a, a nice little vibe that they can ride into the end of the year and make a decent bowl game. Yeah, I mean, BC, Stanford, those seem to be sort of winnable games. I, I don't know if I messaged you about this or not, but I made it out uh, for a game earlier this year. It is a great environment, although, you know, last two games not selling out. I mean... Come on. I know. On, a lot of things competing for spectator attention. And, and uh, you have to have a good product on the field. And if you had a more con- temperature-controlled environment, South Bend would <laughs> be a lot more place in November. Can you imagine building an indoor stadium in South Bend, Indiana? Yes. I think Why you not? can imagine it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, is it an odd thing? Well, I mean, it's a little bit for a college. I think oh. it'd be a little bit weird. Well, Syracuse, I, mean, I think it's the only one. Who's don't get me right into tug. those uh, discussions about what cost colleges cost, especially when they're spending it on these kinds when of when they're uh, spending it on college football yeah I'm all right well right. i think doug sioke and i might, might take the other side of that bet but i'm just saying uh doug sioke always good to catch up with you happy thanksgiving Thank in advance God. ceo partner over at kavar capital partners I was gonna ask doug on what, the what phone from leewood kansas oh yeah we're gonna be very 1950s you guys talk sports and i'll talk oh. food oh doug you're still there I'm still here. Favorite pie? Salted I think I asked you last pie. year. It's apple, right? Apple, nice. Caramel apple pie. Absolutely. Oh, nice. All right, so that's the first apple we've gotten. We got pecan a couple times. Yeah, a lot of pumpkin. A lot of pumpkin. Apple well, pie. That's season of gluttony begin. Yeah. Well, you're from upstate New York, right? So that checks out that, like, you know, all the great apples from upstate New York. I get it. I get it. It makes sense. Have a great Thanksgiving, right, Doug, kiddo. Good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.